Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So we're in this series, Questions I've Always Wanted to Ask God. And <clears throat> last week I gave you some um, resources that you can uh, read, books that you can pick up. Um, because obviously these questions are, are deep and there's a whole lot more to them than we can cover in 25, 30 minutes here uh, on a Sunday morning. And, and a lot of people were writing furiously trying to get those things. We, put, we posted the list up on our website, okay? So if you just go to www.northgateweb.com, um, under the community section, down to resources, and there'll be a list of all five of those books and a little bit of synopsis on all of them. So really encourage you, because um, like I said at the beginning, we want to be the kind of church where we can ask those kinds of questions and be honest about our doubts and struggles and, and, and look for answers together. And, and that's what this whole series is all about. And not just for us, but, but friends of ours who have um, reservations about faith and have questions about God. That's the other reason we're doing this whole series. And one of the ones we're going to talk about this morning is um, how reliable is the Bible? This ancient book, you know, I, how, what does that have to do with 21st century America? You know, how, how does that, is it, is it accurate? Is it reliable? And that's a really, really good question. I thought I'd start off this morning, just show of hands. Anybody here ever read anything in the Bible that was a little confusing to you? Yeah, okay. If you didn't raise your hand, you obviously have not read it at all. Or you're the scholar and you should be up here teaching and I'll go sit down, okay? Yeah, I've got questions. There are parts of it that are hard to understand and you got to wrestle with and you got to dig at and you got to investigate, you got to study. And, 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 and sometimes you think, well, People say things like, well, you know, it's a really, it's a nice book. It's got a lot of really good thoughts and a lot of timeless truths in it. But there's a lot of mistakes in there. And there's a lot of contradictions. And, and you really just can't believe every part of it. Well, this morning, I want to take a look at that. And I want to answer this question, especially with this idea that it's being, it's so confusing. Because it is. And, and by the way, just so you know, if you've read parts and it's a little confusing to you, you are in really good company. This is actually in the Bible itself. Peter wrote in one of his letters. He writes about Paul. He says, Our dear brother Paul writes in the same way in all his letters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So even Peter had a hard time with some of the stuff that Paul wrote. Okay? So we're all in good company here. And this morning, what I want to do is take a look at, okay, is this a reliable book? Can we? Because we, a lot of people have pinned their hope and their faith on the words that come out of this book. Is it reliable? That's a really important question. So this morning, I hope to show that not only can you put your trust in it, but you should put your trust in what it has to say. And we're going to look at this question, and we're going to deal with some of the objections or um, hesitancies that people have. One, historically. Um, second is about its credibility. Um, the third one is about the culturally, you know, how does that apply? And then personally. So we're going to look at each one of those this morning. I'm going to start, first of all, with the historicity of it. Let, let me just read to you Psalm 119, which is a very, very long psalm. But David wrote these words. Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day. For all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Those are David's words. Scripture is so important. He says, I would, be, I would perish without it. New Testament, 
Paul wrote to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture, God breathed. If I did not have it, I would have perished. That's what scripture says about itself. So let's look at it together. First of all, historically. And one of the things you need to understand, and it's really important, is that the Bible is historically reliable. It is historically reliable. Because sometimes people say things like, well, yeah, it's got all those timeless truths, but a lot of it is just myth and legend. A lot, of, a lot of fairy tale kind of stuff in there, and I just can't accept that stuff. But he says, no, all Scripture is God-breathed. That the Spirit of God inspired human writers. Now, one of the things you need to understand, if you're not familiar at all with it, the Bible is not one book. It is actually a collection of 66 books written over a time period of somewhere around 1,500 years by probably about 40 different authors. Okay, now that's a long, if you think about, you know, 512 AD and what life was like then and think about now, a book being written over that period of time by so many different authors in three different languages, and you think, you know, how can that hold together? And yet it does. It there's, is remarkably consistent all the way through with this overarching story and this belief that God himself has invaded human history. That God wants a relationship with mankind, with you individually, with me individually. And that, that, that story unfolding is God working to redeem us back to who he wanted us to be. And it happened with real people in real situations in real time history. Just one example of that. Luke's gospel. Luke starts his gospel talking about the fact that he has thoroughly investigated all of this. And in chapter 3, he talks about the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. And he writes these words. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. Now, that's a lot of historical detail. And why does Luke want to be so historically accurate? Why does he tell us all these names of all these people? Because he wants us to understand this is not a fairy tale. Okay? This is a real thing. This didn't happen long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Okay? This happened in human history at this point in history. And these are the people who were in charge of these areas. And, and I pick up that verse because one of those names mentioned, Licinius, we know Licinius, except, and this is what the, the, the um, skeptics, one of the arguments they said that why the Bible's not trustworthy is because we know Licinius, and, and he actually lived 50 years before this, and he wasn't in Abilene, he was a ruler in a different part, and so it's not accurate until 20th century archaeology unearthed an inscription from the time of Tiberius Caesar that mentions Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. And it turns out, Luke had it right all along. There was more than one Licinius. 
Okay? That's one example of that. There is this harmony. There's this continuity. That, that all of these things, that they just weren't made up. Another objection sometimes brought is um, Psalm 22. If you've read Psalm 22, so much of Psalm 22 is about the crucifixion. In fact, many of the last words of Jesus are found in Psalm 22. And, and the skeptics would say, okay, now that cannot have been written when, when people say it was written. Because there wasn't even crucifixion back in that day. So how could that be written about a crucifixion that happened? It, it can't be. It just can't be. And then there was this incredible discovery made in a place near the Dead Sea. And it was called... Okay, okay, let me try that again. There was this incredible discovery made in a place near the Dead Sea, and it was called the Dead, Sea. Dead Sea. Okay, you do know about that. All right. Yeah, and, and found, one of, of all the scriptures, they found Psalm 22. Dating back to 900 BC, that particular manuscript. So it did predate Christ and the, res- and the crucifixion and resurrection. And that, that's just a couple. Now, archaeology doesn't prove the Bible, okay? But here's the thing. Archaeology has never, anything that's been discovered has never disproved any part of Scripture. Because it was written by real people in real time, in a real place in human history. There's also another matter when it comes to history is um, what is called sometimes historical proximity. And it goes like this. Because we don't have any of the original writings. Uh, in fact, we don't have the original writings of any ancient manuscripts, okay? We don't have the original handwritten things. What we have are copies, manuscripts that were carefully copied, okay? So um, the, the theory goes is that the closer, the oldest manuscripts you can find, the closer they are to the actual time and events that are recorded there, the more accurate they're going to be. And it turns out that... We have so much evidence, biblical evidence, from within decades of Jesus' life on this earth. Now, let me give you an example of that. That compares with Aristotle. Anybody here heard of Aristotle? Okay, you took that class in college. Okay. Aristotle's writings, we don't have the original manuscripts. What we have are copies. And we only have, of all of Aristotle's writings, we only have 49 copies 49 manuscripts of the writings of Aristotle. And the oldest one dates to 1,100 years after his death. Okay, Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman um, historian. We have a little bit more of that. We have the Annals of Tacitus, and, and it's, it's, it's considered a major historical work. We only have 20 manuscripts. And the oldest one of those dates from a thousand years after Tacitus' death. In the New Testament, just the New Testament alone, we have 5,664 Greek translations. That doesn't mean, and and then all the other languages of that time that it was translated into, over 5,000 manuscripts just in the Greek language itself. And the oldest of them date to within a hundred years of Jesus' life. Okay? So historically, there is more of a historical record of the life of Jesus Christ written in the Gospels than there is of any ancient manuscript around. It is that solid. And they wrote about it in real time. Paul's letters. 
The, the letters of Paul go back to the oldest, at the oldest, the oldest dating that is giving is somewhere around 60 AD. And he wrote these words, in fact, to the Corinthian church. He writes about Jesus and his resurrection. He says, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says, Jesus' resurrection was validated at over 500 people at one time saw him. And these people are still alive. You can go talk to them and they will tell you what they saw. It was a historical event. So historically, the Bible is incredibly, incredibly reliable. Now, here's the other objection. Another one comes to do it, its credibility. Well, there's just so many contradictions in the Bible. And one of the things you need to understand, too, is that the Bible is coherently credible. When people talk about all the contradictions that there are in Scripture, there are actually very, very few, and many of them are not contradictions at all. But people will point to, for one example, just look at the descriptions of God. Okay, you go to Psalm 103, and it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And then you read Psalm 92, and it says, The Lord is a God who avenges. O God who avenges, shine forth, rise up, judge the earth, pay back the proud with what they deserve. Well, which is it? Is he gracious and compassionate and loving, or is he avenging? Which, you know, which God is this? Now, that's another question that we're going to do a little bit later, and Jesse's going to handle that one, okay? But let me just give you a quick thing. Understand, the Bible is written in all kinds of different manners, different types of literature. Some of it is history. Some of it are actual letters, Paul's letters to churches. Some of it is poetry, wisdom literature. The Psalms is poetry. And with poetry, there is something that is used called hyperbole. Okay, it, it, it overemphasizes to make the point. Let me give an example of hyperbole. Anybody here, like in your teenage years, ever do something that you knew you shouldn't have done, and then you got found out, and you knew with your, when you got home, your parents were going to get you, and you said something or thought something in your head, something along the line, my dad is going to kill me. Anybody ever think that? Okay. Now, you know good and well your dad wasn't going to kill you. Well, I, I hope you knew that he wasn't really going to kill you, okay? So, but, but that's hyperbole, okay? Now, when Paul, when um, David uses this and talks about the Lord who avenges, first of all, there's a little bit of hyperbole there. But secondly, one of the things that he's saying there is, I will not take vengeance. This is not me to avenge. God, you will take vengeance because you are righteous and you are a judge. And you will judge rightly, more rightly than me. So you, you take vengeance, and, and by the way, those two are not, they don't cancel each other out. God's justice and God's mercy are not incompatible. He can be both. In fact, in fact, if he truly is loving and compassionate, then he would be terribly angry at the sin that destroys the human soul. On Facebook, you know, I, I hate, I, one of my pet peeves, but people will, you know, cut and paste something and then, you know, click like on this if you agree, you know, and there's one of them's been going around lately. It's stupid cancer. And there's this whole thing about stupid cancer. You know, if you've had lost a loved one to cancer, click and agree, you know, or share this with other people. And it's kind of a dumb thing. But, but what it says is if you've lost something, this is stupid cancer. Why is it stupid cancer? Because it takes the life of my loved ones. Okay. Would God not be angry at stupid sin that destroys us? At our very core of our being, of course he would be. 
And that's not because he's an angry, wrathful God. It's because he's a loving God. But his justice is not incompatible with his love. Just one example. Another one. Sometimes they talk about discrepancies, particularly in the Gospels. Because in the Gospels, we have four records of Jesus' birth and death and life and all of that and resurrection. And and so they kind of compare them with each other. And there are some details that are not all on the same page. For instance, Matthew and Mark talk about two angels being at the tomb when the women arrive, when Jesus has resurrected. Matthew and Mark talk about two angels. Luke only mentions one angel, and John doesn't talk about any angels at all. See, there's a contradiction. Well, not necessarily. Because when we talk about inspiration, we're not talking about word-for-word dictation. What we're talking about inspiration of Scripture is that God, through His Holy Spirit, inspired these writers who wrote these accounts from their own perspectives. And just like anything else, when you have it written from four different perspectives, some of the details are not going to be constant. And it's not necessarily contradictory anyway. Because maybe Matthew and Mark thought it was important to point out there were two angels there. And for Luke, all that mattered was the one angel. And for John, the angels didn't matter at all in the story. To him, it was more important the encounter that Jesus had with, with Mary. In, in, in Matthew's gospel, we talk, uh, it says... Mary, the mother of James, and Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Mark says, Mary, Mary, and Salome. Luke says, Mary, Mary, doesn't say anything about Salome, but Joanna and others, it says. And again, you get to John, and all he mentions is Mary. Contradiction. Not necessarily. It's just what they saw and what they felt important for what they were writing. And by the way, I would say those kind of little minor, what might be minor discrepancies really speak to the authenticity of this book. I have a next door neighbor. My next door neighbor, he was for years with um, Contra Costa County and he um, did interrogations and actually he was kind of used the um, uh, lie detector machine. That's especially, now he's actually retired and he's got his own company doing this. Um, and, 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 and I talked to him about this. And he said, you know, one of the things that you know when you're interrogating, when you're talking, to, when everything is exactly the same, when you talk to the two or three or whoever many were involved, and they're exactly the same word for word, you know they got their story straight together. You know they're lying. Because it wouldn't be that word for word. And so the very fact that these, this, these scriptures are written by men, inspired by the Holy Spirit, through their lens, speaks to its authenticity. I think that's a pretty good argument can be made for that. If you read scripture just looking for the discrepancies, contradictions, you will probably be able to find some and make some cases for that. But that's not the way to read scripture. In fact, Jesus talked about the Sadducees who were well-versed in the Scripture. And he said to them on one occasion, he says, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures. Well, they knew the Scriptures. They'd studied the Scriptures, poured over the Scriptures. He said, you did not know the Scriptures or the power of God. He says, you need to understand, Scriptures are not just for, for, for just dabbling in. This is the power of God. And you don't understand the Scripture because you're reading it the wrong way. You're looking at it the wrong way. It is coherently credible. What is clear through all of the scripture is how much the story hangs together. 
And whatever minor contradictions there might be, on the vast, vast majority, it is just so, so coherent. It's reliable in that way. Culture. Another reservation people have is, is some of the things that the Bible seems to endorse. Things like slavery or, or the treatment of women or polygamy or those kinds of things. And so one of the things, the other thing you need to know is that the Bible is culturally relevant. Okay? It was culturally relevant in its time and it carries into our time. One of the arguments is the Bible talks about slavery, seems to endorse slavery. How can we believe in a God and trust in a book that seems to endorse slavery? Now, let me say, the Bible does not endorse slavery. Now, 160 years ago in our country, there were people who used the Bible as a means to try. But that wasn't what the Bible was saying. That was just simply trying to self-justify what they were doing and finding scriptures that would fit that. Which is not the way you read scripture also, by the way. In fact, if you read and you compare with the cultures of its time, that actually... Actually, God is unfolding this work in, in, in human history, and he's changing things. Ancient slavery was barbaric, barbaric. And it was usually enemies that were captured, and they were now made your slaves. But, but when God gave the law, he said, no, 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 no. It's not going to be that way. And in fact, most slaves, slaves became, you became a slave in, in Israel's culture, usually when you, you declared bankruptcy. You couldn't support yourself anymore. But what you could do is you could hire yourself out to somebody else and be their servant. And that's how you became a slave. But God was also very, very clear with them when he gave them the law. He says, now, now here's the deal. You might be able to do that and that will help somebody out. But after seven years, you got to let them go. This is not lifetime slavery and you don't you know, raise them as you raise cattle and th- their kids become slaves too, too. That's not how it's going to work. Every seven years, everybody gets a get out of jail free card. Everybody's released. And in fact, and in fact, when you release them, you don't send them away empty handed. Here's what God gave them. He said, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Give them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord God redeemed you. Now, for that time and that place in human history, that was radical. Absolutely radical. And if we read that in 21st century eyes, and we, and we read about slavery and these things, it says, well, how, can, how, can God, how can God endorse slavery? God was working with what he had at that time. It's unfolding this story all the way through. Um, New Testament. Anybody here ever read the book of Philemon? Eh, A few hands, okay? Philemon is a small little book. In fact, it's it's a very, very tiny book. It's near the back of the New Testament. And what it is, Philemon was a believer who had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus escaped his slavery from Philemon, had become a believer, and Philemon was, had also become a believer, and Onesimus was now with Paul, and Paul's in real, real trouble because here's, he's got somebody else's slave. And he said, okay, I'm sending him back to you. But he says, now I'm sending him back to you, and I want you to receive him. He says, I could, I could give you an order now, but I'm not going to. I just want you to know that you should receive him back in a different way. No longer your slave. He says, there, um, you might bring him, I, I will send him that you might bring him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, a dear 
brother. Now, Paul could have gotten in great trouble legally for harboring this fugitive slave. So he sends him back, but he says to Philemon, don't take him back as a slave. You take him back as a brother in Christ now. That is radical, radical stuff for its time. The treatment of women. Paul gets a really bad rap sometimes about the things that he writes about treatment of women and and being subject and all of this kind of stuff. But listen, this is the words of the Apostle Paul to the Galatian church. There is now neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is not female, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is extremely radical. He says, no ethnic barriers, no cultural barriers, No gender barriers anymore. Because of Christ, we are all one, equal before him. Nobody at that time was teaching that kind of stuff. But what you understand is that the Bible... See, people sometimes take the Bible like it's it's a set of rules and regulations. You know, sometimes people... It's it's, it's like a blueprint for life. Or maybe you've heard this one before. Um, The Bible is like God's handbook for your life. And I think that does a great disservice to the Bible because it's not. It's not a handbook. It was never intended to be a handbook. How often have you opened the handbook of your car, the owner's manual of your car? I do it once a year when I can't remember how to change the clock on the dashboard at daylight savings time. Well, twice a year when it goes back. That's the only time I pull that thing out. Now, for some of us, that's probably all the time you pull out your Bible. But the Bible was not an owner's manual. What you need to understand is the Bible... It's a story. It is a story of God's redemptive work in human history. And it is an ever-evolving and expanding and growing story. And you need to read it that way. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright says, you need to read the Bible like a play in six acts. To be able to understand it clearly. Act one is creation. And God creates and everything he creates is good. And that is, chap- that is act one of the play. In act two is the fall. That human beings decide to take matters into their own hands. They want to be in charge. And they mess things up royally. And sin enters the world. And people start killing their brothers. And all kinds of other bad stuff. And that's, that's act two. Act three. God begins this redemptive work. Through a man named Abraham. And through his descendants. Who become the Israelite nation. And God gives them laws. And helps them understand how life was supposed to be before the fall. And God starts this redemptive work. And most of the Old Testament is God unveiling this plan of redemption. Till you get to act four. Which is Jesus Christ. When God himself becomes a man. And he lives that life. That we were always meant to live without sin, without blemish. And he is killed on a cross and he dies on that cross, not as punishment for his own wrongdoing, not as punishment for his own sin, but he takes on the sin of the world, your sin and mine. And he deals with it finally right then and there and is resurrected to a new life. And that is act four. And we now live in act five. In which God is continuing his redemptive plan through Jesus Christ, through his people, the church. 
And you need to understand the Bible in this unfolding story of God because it's his story. And what you find out is his story is your story because you were created good, but you have sinned and you have messed up and you have fallen. There's a chapter two in your life too. And God has been pursuing you and trying to show you there's a better life. And then he gave his life for you on the cross in act four. And now you have this opportunity that his story of human history is your story. And you become a part of his story now because of that. And that's what you need to understand when you read scripture. And and, and when you think about that, for thousands of years, God has slowly been trying to get us to the point where we could come to faith in Christ. We didn't realize ever how far we had fallen way back when. But he had to work with us over thousands of years to get us to understand all of this stuff to the point where we could understand how desperately we needed his grace. It's a a movie came out a number of years. It was one of my all-time favorite movies called The Sixth Sense. And and it's an incredible movie, just brilliant movie. Um, And it's it's about, if you haven't seen it, it's it's about a a guy, he's um, a, a therapist. And he's helping, working with this child who sees dead people. And there comes a point in the story where all, this is the big aha moment. And a spoiler alert here. If you have not seen the movie, I'm sorry. I'm going to ruin it for you right now. But watch this. I didn't leave you. that scene he realizes he's one of those dead people and when that part of the movie comes about all of a sudden you got to go back and see this movie again because now all this stuff that didn't make sense and you couldn't understand why his wife wasn't interacting with him and and why there was only one day and he goes to dinner and she doesn't even acknowledge him and all of this stuff and it does all of a sudden all of a sudden you got to go back and see that movie because now now that you know this part of it you go back and you see that movie and you go oh wow oh gosh i didn't oh man look at that 
And that's like the Bible. When you know what Jesus did, and you go back now and you read through the Old Testament, you begin to understand what God's been doing all through human history. And the story makes a lot more sense. And that's the way you read Scripture. You read it with understanding, with insight. Because when you do that, there's one more thing. That the Bible becomes personally transformational. It changes your life. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, it makes all the difference how you read the Bible. It makes all the difference. Because you think you're just reading something and you begin to realize it's reading you. <laughs> And you come with certain thoughts and you realize it's revealing your thoughts and your attitudes. You realize that it really is an incredible book. It is a living thing and it lives through the power of the Holy Spirit who is at work within you. And it's this unfolding of God's redemptive work culminated in what Jesus did for you. See, if you read the Bible and you think it's all about you, then it's just a book of of rules and regulations that you have to follow. Then it's just information for your brain. When you begin to understand that the Bible is not about you, it's about Jesus. Changes everything. Then you understand it's not what you have to do for God. It's not about, it's what he has done for you. And you are drawn into a personal encounter with God through Jesus Christ. And it begins to transform your life. And so an ancient scholar by the name of Augustine who lived a very self-indulgent life reads scripture and his life is transformed and we know him now as Saint Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. And a slave trader named John Newton encounters the grace of God through the words of scripture. And it transforms his life. And he leaves all of that slave trade and all that ugliness and everything behind. And he writes the words of the most beautiful, beautiful song ever written. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's an incredible book. It is a powerful book. It is a life-changing book. But you've got to know how to read it. Yes, you can read it. You can read it looking for, looking for contradictions. You can look at trying to disprove it. You can read it and try to... But that's not how it was meant to be read. And that's not how it was written. It was a written of God's story recorded in human history. And what you find out as you read it that way is it's really your story too. It's my story. We are all in need of that incredible grace. And that's why you don't take scripture and just pick and choose what you like about it. Because he says, all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture. Because see, if you just pick and choose the things that are comfortable for you, how is God ever going to change your life? 
If you just take the nicey-nice parts that make you feel warm and fuzzy and all of that, how in the world is it ever going to really transform you like it's supposed to? If you don't wrestle with the parts that are difficult and challenging and, and calls you on the carpet for your behavior and your attitudes, how will you ever discover its power? You can't. And if you just pick and choose the parts that you like, you will never have that relationship with God. Because every human relationship, every relationship changes you, (laughs) challenges you. Any married person in this room will tell you when you're in a relationship like that, it changes you because you come face to face with your selfishness and your own self-interest and all that stuff. And and you got to be changed if you're going to stay in this marriage. And the same thing is true. (laughs) Yeah, that was a good one. But it's true. Every meaningful relationship you have ends up changing you in one way, shape, or form. And so it is in your relationship with Christ. And if you only take the things in the Bible that make you feel warm and fuzzy and you ignore the other stuff or say, I don't need to pay attention to that, then you are missing the power of God to change your life. Because Scripture was given so that you could be drawn into a relationship with Him. And in that relationship, discover the life He always intended you to live. And it comes by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God, making you uncomfortable, stretching you and poking you and prodding you, and changing you. Tim Keller wrote, if you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a relationship with God? And that is so true. Life-changing. Jesus said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.